welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. And thank you for joining us for this edition with Ben Rollins, entitled The Tree Line. Nature Revisited is thrilled to have Farming Carbon of Northern Ireland as our sponsor for this episode. My name is Stephanie McAvoy, and I'm the co-founder of Farming Carbon here in Northern Ireland. And we're delighted to be sponsoring this edition of Nature Revisited. We all know that we are in a climate crisis, so when I returned to Northern Ireland, I found that the best way I could make a difference was by collaborating with a family farm. Since then, Farming Carbon has been working with local farms, investing time, energy and resources to develop sustainable farming practices over the last seven years. Farming Carbon is also working to develop a digital twin so that we can demonstrate of how farming practices can affect food security, water protection, biodiversity and the farmer's health. Farming Carbon is committed to making a difference. To learn more, please visit our website at www.farmingcarbon.co.uk. Once again, Farming Carbon is delighted to be sponsoring this edition of Nature Revisited, a podcast that shares our sense of community. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Once again, thank you for joining us. Ben Rollins is the author of City of Thorns and Radio Congo. He is also the founder and director of Black Mountains College, a college dedicated to teaching the skills necessary for migrating and adapting to climate change. I am talking with Ben from his home in Wales in the UK. I recently just read his book, The Tree Line, which is an amazing book, an important book. And Ben, I want to thank you for writing it. So let's start. Can you describe and define the term tree line as it pertains to your book of the same title? And why did it attract your attention? I believe your other books were about Africa. So what was it about the Arctic and the tree line? So the, the first thing is that the, our common understanding of the tree line is it's a line on a map which shows the growing limit of trees, whether up a mountainside or towards the north of the planet. In fact, that line is always moving because climatic zones are always shifting. And during the Holocene, the tree line has covered pretty much most of the Northern Hemisphere because when the ice retreated back towards the North Pole, hot on its heels followed the plant kingdom. First you had moss and lichen and then you had grass and then pioneer species and so on. So if you're listening to this in the Northern Hemisphere, the ground beneath your feet was probably once forest as that tree line moved north. And it still is moving north, and it it would have been moving north very slowly at this moment in history if we had not pumped the atmosphere full of carbon dioxide. But because the Earth is warming so fast, the trees are now zooming north um, at a much faster rate. And that is what I was trying to explore in this book, is why are they moving so fast? How are those different species responding? 
And what does that mean? Because humans have always been creatures of the forest. We've co-evolved with trees, and our survival depends on them. If they stop working on this planet, then uh, we run out of air. We run out of oxygen. So it was a sort of way of talking about climate change, but also a way of doing that that was hopefully accessible. So it's a travel book. It's a scientific adventure story, a kind of journey of discovery about the northern forest and what they do for us. And this sort of whole boreal system, this Earth system, which is in flux. And then, of course, you, you can't study that without considering what the changes underway mean. And, and that's why the subtitle of the book is The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth, because it will literally dictate the terms for, for life. Um, and the link with the previous books is really my concern as a writer, as I think most writers are at base, with the human condition and how humans survive in extreme circumstances and trying to understand and emphasize the extremes of human experience. So the two previous books, one was about war and resource extraction in the Congo and how people were surviving in the middle of that scenario. And the second was about the world's biggest refugee camp where hundreds of thousands of people were displaced from Somalia and the Horn of Africa into Kenya and have been there for 30 years and are still there and many more are joining them now. So that was really about how how we make communities and imaginations and lives for ourselves within confined circumstances, which to some extent is also uh, related to climate change because that was a, a climate-driven conflict. Uh, all, all three of those books are really considering the territory, if you like, of, of modern life and how how humans are surviving in its strictures. When did you start your journey for the tree line? What year? At the end of 2018, and much of travel then was through 2019. I didn't do all of the travel in the order that it's in the book because the book follows follows the, the boreal forest around the globe in, in a single direction. But the last travel for me was right before lockdown in the, the beginning of 2020 in Russia, and we were starting to see what was happening in Wuhan. Of course, the, the curtain came down and there was no more travel after that. So where and what is the boreal forest, and what importance does it play in understanding the climate changes that are happening. So the boreal forest is the, the northern woods, I think people call it in North America. In Russia, they call it the taiga. And it's this band of forest that goes around the top of the globe. It's one of the definitions of the Arctic Circle. And it is absolutely critical to the current climate in the northern hemisphere. It contains one third of all the trees on Earth people call the Amazon the lung of the world. Actually, the boreal forest is responsible for more cycling of oxygen than, than all the rainforests put together. It, it does a number of things. So it, it controls rain. Forests transpire moisture, and then they, when it rains, they then suck it up through their roots and transpire it again. So you get these kind of circular cycles of, of rain moving inland. Forests basically suck rain inland from the coast and then there are teleconnections which push it 
into other places. So it controls the rain. It plays a role in the wind because, again, that pressure deficit when forests transpire sucks cold air in lower down and then causes cyclonic patterns that, that push the wind around the, the northern hemisphere. It has a role to play in the jet stream that's not fully understood and the polar front, which is the, the, the sharp gradient between the warm air and cold air. And then the last thing is that it has a key role in the salinity of the Arctic Ocean and the ability of the Arctic Ocean to operate what's called the saline pump, where the heavy salt water sinks down to the bottom, causing ocean currents from other parts of the ocean. Because the boreal forest collects all this fresh water and then it discharges that into the Arctic Ocean, mostly through the rivers of Siberia and North America. The air, the rain, the wind, the fresh water, not to mention the natural resources, the species and so on, all of which we we derive from this boreal zone. So it, it's a much overlooked stretch of the planet, but one which is absolutely critical to life as we know it and enjoy it at the moment. So where did your fascination and passion for trees come from? I've always been fascinated by forests. In fact, that was sort of what took me to Africa in the first place when I was much younger and then on to, to Congo to look at deforestation. Um, I think it's, it's probably partly from my grandfather who was fascinated by trees and always used to test us. What's that? What's that? He's a great believer that we should know what we're looking at in the in the world. But I think what's particularly poignant about the tree line and the boreal forest is the fact that you know there is such a focus on trees now with climate change, and we start to look at them differently. We start to they've become a commodity, they've become a kind of panacea, they've become a kind of talisman for tree planting and mitigating climate change. But actually, I think for me in this book, what I've seen is that they're actually they're counsellors and they're they're offering a warning. So it, it was really you know thinking about the role that we that we've ascribed trees and how much kind of hope is pinned on them. Better look at at how they're getting on because climate change is is not good for trees at all, and most trees can't survive where they are if it gets much hotter. As you mentioned, and, and we all kind of know that the tropical rainforests have obviously grabbed our attention. But you take us on a journey to the north, to the Arctic. Why do you think that that part of the world and those forests have been kind of overlooked? Well, I think the first thing is access. It's really hard to get to. There are almost no roads in the Russian tiger forest. There's not much in in Canada either. I mean, many of these indigenous communities are fly-in destinations only. It's really cold. It's pretty inhospitable. There aren't that many people who live up there. And I think they're also not that species-rich. I mean, if you compare to the rainforest, the rainforest is quintessential biodiversity hotspot. There are thousands of species per square inch. If you go to the boreal forest, there's only a few species. I think there's only about 12 species that largely make up the boreal forest because there's not many that can survive in that cold. So it's a very different kind of concept of of nature. It's not one in which you know life is teeming in that kind of 
weird and wonderful and exotic way. So what were you hoping to find when you first started planning your journey to the different regions of the Arctic? And did you get more questions than answers? I would say that yes, but that's always the case. I mean, I, I, never, I never travel hunting for a particular thing. What I'm looking to explore is particular questions. And I think the beauty of this project for me, from a craft point of view, was that I was confronted with seven species because the tree line is made up of distinct species in different places. Because when, these, when the trees arrived, for example, in Scotland or Scandinavia or northern Russia, they didn't arrive there through being propagated horizontally. They came from lower down. So in each case, you had a refugia and then a species moving north from a redoubt much further south. So you have exclusively birch in Scandinavia, larch in Russia, spruce in North America, a bit of balsam poplar and then rowan in Greenland. So I had these very key distinct species that I was looking to get to know, that I was looking to have a relationship with, try and understand what was happening to them, why they got there, and what what the future holds. And I think it was one of the, the most joyful and easy books to write because in each place I was I was continually having my mind blown and finding new wonderful new things that I wanted to share. So yeah, there are some there are some very big questions <laughs> that arise at the end of it less questions about those individual species and more about, you know, what the whole thing means. Standing on the, the honeycombed sea ice in the Laptev Sea, a few days walk south of the, of the North Pole and realizing that the whole of the seabed is muddy permafrost that's melting. It's not just the permafrost on land. And in fact, the seabed is giving up its methane an awful lot faster than the landbound permafrost. So those are the sort of bigger questions that I ended up with whilst satisfying much of my curiosity about these lovely trees. As we've said in your book, you visited six regions, starting in, in Scotland, then went to Norway, Russia, Alaska, Canada, and then Greenland. Can you briefly just describe the dominant tree in each of those regions and their impact on the land and the culture that live there. I think what's amazing about this is, is how little perhaps we understand and how much we take for granted the habitat that we find ourselves in without realizing how contingent it is. So in, in Scotland, for example, the Scots pine is the national tree. There's hardly any left of the old growth forest in Scotland. So the story there is more about deforestation. What I also found out there was that the pines were in the pollen record, the pines arrived in Scotland over much faster timescales than they could possibly have arrived if they had been propagated naturally. What it suggests is that they were brought, the species were introduced by humans, by Celts coming north from Portugal and coming east from Kiev. So you have actually the, the DNA roots of the Scots pine are in the Ukraine and the Iberian Peninsula not Scotland at all. And that really complicates the picture of what's, what's happened in Scotland. And yet, you know, we built lots of culture and folklore and stories and industries and 
even diets based on this tree, which is considered to be native, but actually is a is kind of an invasive species. And then if you go to Norway, across the North Sea, you have birch, uh, which has been a kind of central feature of the, the life of the indigenous communities in, in Finnmark, the Sami in particular, the reindeer herders, people who live in Lapland. And they have co-evolved with birch over the last 10,000 years and use birch for so many different elements of their, their lifestyle in terms of tents and kitchen utensils and sleds and all sorts of things. And yet the birch are the harbingers of the end of their way of life because it's the birch colonizing the tundra, which is basically eliminating all the grazing territory for the reindeer and the reindeer are losing their way, the trees are trapping more snow, that's melting the permafrost, that's then freezing in a kind of freeze-thaw cycle instead of saying staying dry and cold, and then the reindeer can't reach the grass and they're dying in massive numbers. So although the birch is kind of venerated and a central part of their culture, it's also now the source of threat. If you move along to Russia, you have the tiger, which is almost exclusively larch. And the crazy thing about the larch is that the larch is in fact a weed, which was allowed to spread when the humans took out all the megafauna, the mammoths and the, and the elk and the saipan, saipan horses and so on, that kept the Russian steppe in a kind of savannah-like situation with patches of woodland. But as soon as the humans killed all the mammoths, of large spread like a weed and now you have actually a very species poor forest if you take the long view a very bizarre relationship between humans and, and and trees and then over to alaska the spruce is going crazy in alaska the key difference there is that because the beaver has been protected in north america the beavers are now accelerating the afforestation of the tundra in Alaska because they're eating the trees that are growing on the tundra. They're felling them for beaver dams. That, of course, is causing more water retention, more taking more heat down into the soil, more permafrost melt, and then that encourages more, more vegetation and so on. So beavers are actually the number one driver of surface water melt and permafrost degradation in Alaska than much more than temperature. And the scientific paper that I came across that details all of this is called Tundra Be Damned. So again, an, an, a, a really fascinating process at work where you know one supposedly benign influence of, of humans by protecting beavers has actually allowed them to, to now play this, this, this very different other role. Go then to Canada and the story there is of the people of Poplar River in Pimachuanaki near Winnipeg who have come to protect the forest of Pimachuanaki, which is a huge area about the size of Denmark, through a process of confronting their colonial past and trying to understand what was going wrong in their communities and going back to the land and rediscovering their language and telling their old stories. And that led then to a decade-long campaign to protect the land and turn it into a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That having been restored, the humans are, are finding their way and their place within nature again, regaining their place within nature, sort of reversing that separation.
And the last place is, is Greenland, where there are, believe it or not, there are four native tree species in Greenland. There is a very small forest in Greenland in one of the fjords in the south. Strangely enough, because it's so cold, although it's very far south, because it's so cold, there's been a group of Danish researchers and Greenlandic who have made an arboretum, the National Arboretum of Greenland, which has got an enormous collection of species from across the boreal region. And as things are changing really, really fast everywhere else, it could well be that that arboretum becomes the kind of refugia, the sort of arc, if you like, from which the boreal forest will regrow in future. It's a long and tangled history in all these different places of humans' relationship with the forest, but in a nutshell, that's sort of what I was trying to look at and, and, and thinking about how we go from here. So can you talk a little bit about how trees function in a community of their own, that they do have sacred roots in the land and the culture. Yes, absolutely. So the two best examples I'm familiar with is Susan Simard's work in, in Canada where the birch and the Douglas fir share nutrients and share carbon underground and look after each other. There's another example in Scotland where I found many, many Scots pines on their own, kind of lonely on a hillside, which is a very quintessential Scottish image. But in fact, all of those lone granny pines, they're called, don't end up living all that long. And there's a comparative study in Sweden which shows that when a granny pine is, is in Sweden, surrounded by its young, the offspring shuttle nutrients and carbon to the old mother trees. So the role that the mother trees play with the, with the seedlings when they're young um, is reversed in old age and they actually live another 100, 200 years longer when they're in an intact forest surrounded by their offspring. So in your book, you say, quote, our place has always been at the edge of the forest with a relationship to it. So across each region you visited, you visited different indigenous cultures, such as in Norway and in Canada. Can you highlight some of those visits and give us an idea just how much climate change is affecting their way of life. So I think I touched on it in the Norway comment. That's probably the starkest example of, of where climate change is having a huge impact because the trees are changing the landscape. The culture is based on enjoying the landscape as it currently is. As the trees are taking over the tundra, that landscape is no longer viable. And people are confused. People are having mental health problems. They are, they're breaking down. They're fighting in their communities. Their livelihoods are being taken away. They're blaming the Norwegian government, you know, attempts to, to annihilate their, their culture and their way of life. And they're, in many cases, they're seeing their inheritance evaporate before their eyes. That's a very sort of severe case. In others, the, the changes are not so far advanced and people are talking of the language of adaptation. We will adapt. We've always lived on this land. The, the, uh, the Anishinaabe of Poplar River in Panipimachuanaki say. And we will continue 
to adapt and to, to survive from this land. And I think they're probably right. I think even as things unravel in other parts of the world, the people who have that close relationship to the land, who know which species are growing where and which seems to be doing well and not so well, they will have a much better ability to to flex and to, to live in symbiosis with their habitat. There is another example worth mentioning, which is the the Inganasan in in Russia. Their culture is almost extinct, but they have a, uh, or at least the person I spoke to, Yevstapi, who's one of the oldest surviving members of the of the Inganasan people, had a a very bleak take on the on the changes. He had a view that you know nature was immense and and uncontestable and you could not fight with it he was very blasé about his language going extinct he said better to let the children not speak the language than butcher it and he was also very blasé about the, the the landscape changing he said you know did your scientists say that there were trees here before as well you know you can talk about climate change or you like i'll be dead so he was that was his way of coping with it there's something quite heroic about accepting those consequences in a way. I mean, it's not, it's small consolation, but it's, it's a very, I think, in, interesting way of, of coping with it. Next, can you address the question that you asked in your book? Quote, aren't more trees a good thing? <laughs> yes, the planting advice is always right tree, right place. I'm sure you're Listeners have heard that phrase. The permafrost is not the right place for a tree because it encourages the microbial activity, it melts the permafrost, and it you know, hastens the, the degradation of that ecosystem. So it's counterintuitive, but I think what the book shows is that there are these enormous changes already underway. There's not very much we can do to stop them. We can try and slow them down. Uh, we can't arrest it entirely. When you see the scale at which forests can reproduce themselves anyway, it, it sort of puts all human endeavor into, into some perspective. I think the, the answer is yes, more trees are good, but not in the Arctic. And we need to be working with nature to try and allow forests to to regrow where they can. And I think, you know, the tropical rainforests are a brilliant example. We don't need to do much. All we need to do is stop cutting them down and allow space for them to come back. And most of the reasons why we cut them down are not because we need to feed people. Um, they are because we need to support commercial enterprises which are inherently destructive. There are plenty of ways in which we can feed everybody perfectly well without deforestation. So one of the biggest disconnects I kind of see in reading your book is the amazing difference between indigenous cultures and the industrial world when it comes to this concept of what is sacred. And I consider trees to be sacred. My question is, do you think that it is essential in finding our way forward that the civilized world has to regain an understanding that all nature is sacred? 
and that we must start to learn, as you say in the book, to look with ancient eyes. Yes, I do. I think this climate change is a symptom of a much bigger civilizational crisis. And I think for me, this what 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 I've been thinking about for the last five or maybe even ten years is the different ways you can look at this. You can see it as a scientific problem to do with emissions. You can see it as a problem of kind of capitalism and economics. You can see it as a problem of narrative and the sort of stories we tell about ourselves. Or you can see it as a problem on a much deeper level of ethics and exactly this question of, you know, do, what do we consider to be sacred and what does it mean to be human? All moments of crisis are existential in the sense that they ask you, they pose the question, what does it mean to be human? And this is the mother of them all. And in answering that question, we have to take a good hard look at all the various ways in which we can be human, all the ways we have evolved of being human, and all the possibilities that that entails. And I think there is an awful lot to learn from indigenous cultures which have systems that work, that are in symbiosis with their habitat, that don't destroy it. And you could say, well, if we had a law, like the Stop Ecocide Law, where the destruction, the willful destruction of natural, you know, natural ecosystems was illegal. That's the closest we come in modern civilization to, to the sacred. The sacred was always a kind of ethical framework. We don't really have that anymore. We have a legal framework. That's sort of where we draw the line in our society between, you know, what's what's right and wrong. So it could be legal. It could be ethical. It could be moral or indeed religious, the starting point for all of those answers to which the sacred is, is one, and which would certainly be one that I agree with, we are of nature. We are made of this earth. We return to this earth. And yeah, if, you, if you don't find a way of living that respects that, then, then we're lost. Uh, and we are you know, currently very lost. <laughs> so this is about trying to find a way back. So let's talk briefly about the school you started. You mentioned it in your book, Black Mountains College, which is in Wales. Was this an idea you had before you wrote the book or after? The idea for founding Black Mountains College came about at the same time as I was starting to look into climate change, starting to get concerned, thinking about my children, and also thinking about topics for my next book. So I, I began that research and began exploring the idea of the school at the same time. They both sort of took off in, in 2018. The focus is really to explore the question we just discussed, which is what does it mean to be human at this moment? And what does education look like in a planetary emergency? The answer is that we need to rethink everything in the context of everything else. Climate change is the frame for the curriculum. It's not a subject. The focus then is on unleashing the human. So this is very much drawing on the tradition of Bauhaus, the tradition of the experimental liberal arts college called Black Mountain in North Carolina in the States, to try and unleash all our human capabilities, both to meet the crisis, to look deep inside ourselves, to adapt to what's happening, to, to come up with 
new ways of living and working to try and put that into practice. So it's a it's an experimental learning community, and we're looking to bring on more courses in agroecology, land use conservation, and, and other things, including the arts. And the third strand is a degree program. So it's an interdisciplinary liberal arts program where it's called Arts, Ecology, and Systems Change. So it's about really whole body learning, how we learn through all our senses, how we then integrate that with a relationship with our environment, with other people, and then a positive focus on driving change. So the way you can find out more is through our website, which is blackmountainscollege.uk, and that's mountains with an S. And there's lots about our courses, and you can also email me or the rest of the team on there. Uh, And we'd love to hear from you. So I just have two more questions. First, at the end of your journey, what did you find most disturbing about what is happening in the Arctic? What's most disturbing for me is I started with this idea that the scientists had a pretty good handle on what was happening. And what was most disturbing was to realize that the methane is out of control. The methane is not in the models. The tipping points are not in the models. And we are seriously underestimating the speed at which things are changing. So that was what what most unsettled me. And finally, in your own words, what is a forest? And why and how do we start to, quote, think like one? A forest is a collection of species that have co-evolved into a community, a biosphere which sustains other life. And if we are to survive on this planet as it changes and as the the warming uh, impacts mount, we're going to have to think like a forest. We're going to have to re-entangle ourselves with other species. We're going to have to get to know very fast We're going to have to turn ourselves into learning machines to learn what grows where, what survives under under what conditions, and not just with other species, but with members of our own species, because we're not going to be able to ride this out on our own. We're going to need to build local communities that are reciprocal, that are supportive, that are generative, that are producing food and meaning and opportunities and care for each other. So I think that kind of localized co-evolution, that paying attention to each other and the other species with which we share our habitat, which is second nature to those indigenous cultures, that is is the future for for us, whether we like it or not. Um, So that's what I mean by thinking like a forest. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Rollins and that you get a chance to read his book, The Tree Line. If you would like to learn more about Ben and the school that he started, please visit blackmountainscollege.uk. Nature Revisited would like to thank Farming Carbon for sponsoring this episode. And if you would like to sponsor an episode of Nature Revisited, please visit our website, 
You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or our website, which is NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. The music for this episode is the Doobie Brothers, Long Train Running. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, please remember, we are nature. Nature.